This morning we conclude the series we have been involved in for some time on Sunday morning with the theme, The New Testament Christian. And of late, in the final part of this series, we have been dealing specifically with this theme. The New Testament Christian never stops growing. The New Testament Christian never stops growing. And we've looked, based upon statements in First Peter, at ten qualities in which the Christian should continue to grow. And today, we conclude that series by looking at the final two qualities in which growth, growth is necessary. The first is knowledge. And as we think about the passage upon which we base the assertion that the Christian is to grow in knowledge, you look at 1 Peter 3.15 and you say, well, that doesn't even have the word knowledge in it. The verse reads, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense, as the New King James renders it, an answer, as the King James says, a defense, and the word is apologia, apology, an apology, a defense, apologetics, the, the, uh, the realm or the work of uh, defending uh, the existence of God, defending the inspiration of the Bible. All of that field of work, the apologetics field, comes from this word defense as we defend the truth. Be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you, and yet do so with the right attitude, with meekness and fear. And while the word knowledge is not in this verse that we're keying on here, it's obviously implied. How so? Because it's impossible to be ready to give a defense for the hope that is in you unless you have the knowledge necessary to do so. But if we needed a passage that clearly tells us where to grow in knowledge. Peter's second epistle does that for us. In 2 Peter 3 and verse 18, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and forever. Amen. And a passage we mentioned in Bible class this morning, 2 Peter 1, 5, there Peter writes, but also for this very reason, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, to virtue knowledge. And he goes on with that list of great Christian graces, as we so often call them. But notice here, add to your faith. Faith is the foundational principle. And yes, faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. In other words, faith is based upon knowledge, Romans 10, 17. But as we mentioned this morning in Bible class, is it the case that once we come to the knowledge of the truth in terms of what I need to do to become a Christian, that I'm no longer under any obligation to gain more knowledge, but I simply rest upon that knowledge that I have gained? No, Peter says no, and so does all of the New Testament. It says no, add to your faith, the faith that you have based upon the knowledge you've gained, but add virtue, moral courage is the idea of virtue, and to virtue... Knowledge, in other words, keep on adding that knowledge. And I'm sure that all of us here this morning understand that that admonition permeates the Scripture. 
and that it is the acquisition of that knowledge, the most important knowledge that one could acquire, that is the knowledge that comes from the Word of God, that will enable us to ultimately be at home eternally with God. Zeal is important. Enthusiasm is certainly something that is important. A positive attitude is something that we should all strive to have, and we should also have a great deal of fervor and zeal for whatever our hand finds to do, as a wise man of old said. Do it with all of your might. And we can look at, at various individuals in various realms of endeavor and say they have tremendous zeal. You know, sometimes you may, uh, you may encounter a, a sales clerk or someone uh, in a situation like that, and you uh, you encounter that person who seems to just love his or her job, and you appreciate that. And sometimes Janice and I will comment after we've had a situation like that and say, you know, that was really encouraging. That person really does put himself or herself into his or her job. We appreciate zeal. But when it comes to spiritual zeal, unless that spiritual zeal is accompanied by knowledge, then it is really of no value and, in fact, is responsible for great harm. Remember what Paul wrote in Romans 10, 1 through 3, about his brethren in the flesh, his fellow Israelites. He said, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but here's the problem, but not according to knowledge. And then he elaborates, for they being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish or seeking to establish their own righteousness have not submitted to the righteousness of God. What is the righteousness of God? The righteousness of God is that which makes man righteous, that which is revealed in his word that tells us how to become righteous, that is how to do right. A simple definition of righteousness is right doing or doing right. How do we know how to do right? By acquisition of knowledge. Zeal without knowledge is responsible for great harm because it cements, if you will, an individual into that position where that zeal convinces him or her that everything's great. And what I feel, what I feel is most important. And how I express that feeling is most important. Oh, that is important. Zeal is important. But zeal without knowledge is of no value. And as we said, of great harm. Well, someone says, well, no, that's right. But love, what about love? Love, if I have love, do I need to be concerned that much about knowledge? Well, remember in our earlier study in Philippians, in which we're still involved in that study, but earlier in the study, we looked at this passage. The Apostle Paul expressing his prayer for the Philippian brethren in chapter 1 at verses 9 through 11. And this I pray that your love may abound. There's, there's the need for abounding love. And notice this, still more and more, as we've talked about, there is superlative upon superlative, abounding love. Isn't that enough, Paul, that our love abounds? No, it needs to abound still more. Well, isn't that enough, Paul, that it abounds still more? No, it needs to abound still more and more. And we've often said, you don't reach a point where you say, 
cutting off love now. Got that. I love enough. No, we, we grow in that love. We abound still more and more. But notice the next two words, in knowledge, in knowledge. Love and law are not mutually exclusive, as some in the religious world would have us believe. Love and law are mutually inclusive. Love and law, love and knowledge, because I must have a knowledge of God's law, the law of Christ, the New Testament. And so Paul says, I want your love to abound still more and more, but in what? In knowledge. And look at what that leads to, and all discernment perception, understanding. I don't want you to just have a knowledge of what's in this book. I want you to be able to make application of what is in this book. I want you to be able to use that knowledge to produce a discernment, a perception, an understanding of what? The things that are right and wrong, yes, but more specifically the things that are excellent. Not just the things that are good and bad, but the things that are excellent that you may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ, being filled with the fruits of righteousness which are by Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. You cannot possibly fulfill that admonition. You cannot possibly be an answer, as it were, to Paul's prayer unless you have the knowledge of this word and that you're making application of it. In 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 4, Paul writes, Therefore I exhort, first of all, that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and all who are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. And then he says in verses 3 and 4, For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved, and notice this, and to come to the knowledge of, of the truth. Who would deny that we need to know the truth? Well, tragically, many do deny that truth is important or that it's absolute. But to come to the knowledge of the truth is what God desires. But how do we do that? Jesus prayed in John 17, 17, sanctify them He's talking to God here in prayer about the apostles in that portion of his prayer. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. Now, 1 Timothy 2, 4 says, God desires that all men be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. Here, Jesus makes it abundantly clear that the word is truth. Therefore, to come to the knowledge of the truth in fulfillment of God's desire for you, you have to have the word. And you cannot do it without that word. And Paul again reminds us of that in the very familiar text we often quote, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. As we begin a new year very shortly, no doubt many will begin that year with a planned reading of the scripture with the determination to read the entire Bible through during the coming year. And that's good. We're even putting a, a planned, uh, suggested reading plan in the, in the bulletin for you to do that. That's good. But, but knowledge without 
application, knowledge without discernment and understanding and perception. Make sure that as you, as you engage in that reading, that you are not just reading words to say, I finished X number of chapters today, but make sure that those words are truly producing what God intends for them to produce and what they certainly can and will produce because that word has that inherent power. It's God's dynamite. It is literally God's power to save. And it needs to be learned because there's so much out there that is contrary to truth. And Paul reminds us of that as he writes to Timothy and says, Oh, Timothy, guard what was committed to your trust, avoiding the profane and idle babblings and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. You've got to make sure you avoid what is falsely called knowledge. And the very admonition makes it abundantly clear that in Paul's time as well as in our time, there would be and there are those who are claiming that something is the knowledge of God that is truly anything but that. And by professing it, Paul says, some have strayed concerning what? The faith, which reminds us that there is but one system of faith, the faith. Not faiths, but faith singular. The faith, Jude 3, once for all delivered to the saints. There is a knowledge out there today that permeates the religious world that is contrary to the knowledge that we find in God's Word. And by professing it, some have strayed concerning the faith. And some of that knowledge that is falsely called knowledge supposedly comes right from this book. As people quote this passage or that passage, but do so out of context, do so as a pretext to their prejudiced ideas and beliefs, trying to make this book agree with them rather than their being determined to agree with it. So some even claim what I'm saying is biblical. What is saying? What I'm saying is biblical, and therefore that's the knowledge of God. During all of this Duck Dynasty uh, furor, as I mentioned, I think last week in class, Bill O'Reilly on the O'Reilly Factor just made what, frankly, was a sickening it's the best word I can describe, application of the Word of God. Citing Luke's account of where the Lord said, Judge not that you be not judged. And saying, therefore, there should have been no condemnation of homosexuality by that member of the Robertson family. That is, that is falsely called knowledge. But he quoted scripture. But so did the devil when he tempted the Lord. But he quoted it out of context. And so therefore, we need to be knowledgeable enough to know when someone is misusing even that which is truly the knowledge from God, but not using it fairly, but abusing it. And then in Second Peter, Chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. The final text we'll look at in this particular quality of knowledge. 
Peter writes, Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. As His divine power has given to us all things. This is very similar to 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. Same idea here. As His divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Everything that pertains to life and godliness, God has given to us through His divine power, through what? Through the knowledge of Him who called us by glory and virtue, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises. Where are those promises? They're in the knowledge that God has revealed to us, that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. How did you escape that corruption if you've escaped it this morning? It was not through zeal alone. It was not through feeling. It was through the knowledge of God's Word. And when you accepted it, if you have done so, you had to have a quality at which we look next and last that is vitally important, not only to our acceptance of the truth in obeying the gospel initially, but in continuing to live the Christian life. And that quality is humility. That's the final quality at which we look as we look at this theme of the New Testament Christian never stops growing. And the key passage here is 1 Peter 5 and verse 5. Likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another. All of you be submissive to one another. And be clothed with humility. For God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. I've said that this is a clothing figure, obviously. Something you put on. But humility is not to be worn as a ring, but as something that covers far more. Be clothed with humility. And that word clothed is used here and nowhere else in the New Testament. This is the only place it is found, and it comes from a word that indicates the apron that was tied around the slave or the servant in biblical times who served a household, served his master in various ways. It means that apron that was worn, that when you saw that apron, when you saw that apron tied around the body of the servant, you knew you were looking at a servant. Because that particular garment just screamed servant. <laughs> That's what it said. I'm a servant. And what Peter is saying is, you put on that apron, and don't you be ashamed to wear it and to display it and to make it clear by, by that garment that you are a servant of the Lord. You be clothed with humility. Because you recognize that God resists the proud 
but gives grace to the humble. A little over a year ago, I preached a sermon on humility in and of itself. And in reference to this idea, God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble, I asked the question, do you want to fight against God or do you want the favor of God? God fights against the proud. And so if we find ourselves among the proud, we find ourselves fighting against God and we'll lose that battle every time. And so it's, it's incumbent upon us to understand and fully appreciate genuine humility and to strive to grow in that humility and to always be genuinely humble in heart. There's a similar clothing application that Paul makes in the Colossian letter with this quality. Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering. Put on. There's the clothing application again. Put on these qualities. He has mentioned put off the old man, put off the dirty clothes, get rid of all the dirty garments that you wore out here in the world, and now that you're in Christ, you've put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, and long-suffering. And this word for meekness that is used in the New Testament is the word we find in Matthew eleven twenty nine, where Jesus says, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am meek, or the New King James says gentle, and then he says, and lowly in heart. Lowly in heart. That's the word that is so often translated humility. And literally the idea is, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am meek or gentle and humble in the heart. Isn't that a beautiful phrase? Humble in the heart. We talk about being heavy-hearted at times. We talk about people being hard-hearted at times. But every child of God should be humble-hearted, humble in the heart, because Jesus characterized himself in that way. For I am meek and humble in the heart, and you shall find rest for your souls. We are to be humble in the heart. In Titus 3, 1 and 2, Paul says, remind them to be subject to rulers and authorities, to obey, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing all humility to all men. You know, if all of us genuinely and fervently and continually strive to make these qualities ever-present and growing always in our lives. What a beautiful situation we have in every congregation where we're all striving individually to do just that. And James 4, 6 says he gives more grace. He'll give more favor and grace to those who are truly striving to be humble in the heart. Because again, God resists the proud, goes back to Proverbs 3.34, from which this statement comes in the Old Testament. He says, God resists the proud, but gives grace or favor 
to the humble. Who can be saved without the grace of God? Who wants to try to live this life without the grace of God? Who wants more and more of the grace of God? All of us, surely. Therefore, let's make sure that we are truly humble in the heart. Because as someone has written, the high and the mighty, God will bring down. That's a scriptural statement, isn't it? We've just seen that from James 4, 6. But the humble and lowly will one day be crowned with glory, not gold or any such thing, for in the hearts of the humble, the Savior is king. And the late F.B. Meyer made this excellent statement. He said, I used to think that God's gifts were on shelves, one above another, and the taller we grow, the easier we can reach them. Now I find that God's gifts are on shelves, one beneath another, and the lower we stoop, the more we get. That's biblical. James admonishes, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. And then he says, humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. Have you done that this morning? If you're not a Christian, you haven't. And therefore, you need to follow James's inspired admonition and humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord by expressing your belief in Jesus as the Christ, by repenting of your sins, changing your mind about sin, by confessing freely that you believe him to be the Christ, the Son of the living God, and then by humbly submitting to a burial in water where the blood of Christ awaits you to be applied to cleanse you from every sin. Oh yes, God does want the sinner to lament and mourn and weep. He doesn't want the sinner laughing. He wants the sinner seriously contemplating his sad state, the sad state of his soul and determining, determining to change that by humility that leads to obedience to the simple plan we have just outlined. And we plead with you to do that, or if you need to come home to your first love. As one who has once known that humility of heart that led to your initial obedience, but that you have not maintained that humble walk, and that you've walked again in the world, and need to humble yourselves again in the sight of the Lord and come home to Him, we plead with you to do that now as we stand to sing to encourage you.